Today on Foodstuffs. Jess talks to a young chef about how traveling to the other side of the world is now inspiring him and others to give back here at home. And then Brian speaks with an Ontario farmer who believes so strongly in the quality of his crop that he's shipping it to Asia. When a chef standpoint, you just like we just constantly want to push ourselves and keep learning and uh, learning techniques and stuff and just using different kind of ingredients and, and um, just presenting it in a modern way. I'm really highly frustrated that the product ends up uh, with lots of preservatives in it. It ends up with like a an eight week shelf life, and that's just not the way that it should be done. Hi, my name's uh, Omar Jahangir. Uh, we're at a Tinalite restaurant. You're listening to Foodstuffs. Welcome to Foodstuffs, a podcast about food and culture and their intersections. I'm Jessica Walker and I'm Brian Goman. All right, first up, um, I met a man by the name of Omar Jahangir working at the restaurant where I work a few years ago. Um, I worked with a slew of amazing chefs, established and up and coming, but I think he was one of the first that had clearly come in intent on creating these beautiful, delicious, super clean plates of food. Um, so where I work, we serve delicious and attractive uh, food, but the things that were inspiring Omar were even further refined. Um, what I've now learned is called modernist cuisine. Okay, so what is modernist cuisine, Jessica? <laughs> um, when we first chatted recently, it was actually really hard for him to articulate, but essentially it is super thoughtfully plated food where the story of the chef and the components on the dish are presented in this innovative and kind of challenging way. So what I've read about it, it basically talks about how diners have certain implicit expectations when, let's say, they see a certain ingredient on a menu, but that it will be extra meaningful and memorable to challenge them on that level. So if you've seen Chef's Table on Netflix, the plates that uh, Magnus Nielsen from Favakin puts up are perfect examples. Um, on that show, he strives to recreate the experience of melting lake ice in sheets for the diners. Um, but like in an edible way, obviously, you're not going to go out and harvest sheets of ice from the lake to eat. Um, so really silly, but playful and super unique and an expression of this chef's like sky's the limit kind of attitude. Well, as a proud Canadian, I'll say that I have eaten sheets <laughs> of ice. <laughs> you mostly would. as a child. Yeah, me too. But that's kind of like an icicle yeah. or something too, right? <laughs> but that's not what we're talking about here. No, no, not directly at least, but it is relevant, I promise. So after Omar left the restaurant, I heard he had gone away for like a working holiday, as a lot of chefs do. So flash forward to about three months ago, and I started to see him posting photos with references to something called the Homegrown Dinner Project and references to to raising money for charity. Lo and behold, he was back in Toronto, leading the way on a new project that was pairing his love of modernist cuisine with raising money for a good cause. So, naturally, I needed to know what had happened in the years since we'd last hung out and to know what on earth the Homegrown Dinner Project is. Naturally. So here's Jess in conversation with Omar Jahangir, chef and creator of the Homegrown Dinner Project. Um, so basically, I just came back from overseas traveling, and uh, I was working. I am working here at Ictinolite, and um, just the experience of, of other restaurants and other and other food cultures and, and the way things are done overseas really changed kind of my view on on food and stuff and uh, restaurants. 
and then we had a lot of young stagiaires come in to to the restaurant um kind of with a similar attitude of seeing what's kind of going on around the world and 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 like they were really into foraging and using ingredients that are very local and and stuff like this and um we just couldn't find really a lot of that outlet so we I decided to create an outlet for some of these younger guys to kind of do their thing and and showcase that a little bit and just to be clear what exactly is a stagiaire or a stage a stage is um where you go and work for free um usually big restaurant bigger restaurants um take a lot of stagiaires like Noma has up to 40 stagiaires that will just work for the experience and not necessarily get paid for it and when I talked to you about this before, you compared it to an internship, right? Yeah, it's like an internship, basically an un- unpaid internship that you're just doing it for for the purely on basis of learning. Right. Yeah. And so you have been interacting with people back in Toronto, kind of acknowledging that there isn't this outlet for the type of food that you are creating um, when you were traveling, but you were staging and working overseas in Australia. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I was actually there on a visa. Um I have staged at other places, but I was I was there for a year. I was working on a working holiday visa. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Toronto right now, there is a lot of sharing plates. There is a lot of uh, fusion as well happening. Um, but there's something distinct about modernist. Is it modernist cuisine? Is I that guess, you, yeah, you could call it that. Um, there's very, very much a casual vibe um, in Toronto right now, and uh, which isn't a bad thing, which is great. You know, everyone likes to eat that way, but... Um, but as a cook standpoint or as a chef standpoint, um, you just like we just constantly want to push ourselves and keep learning and uh, learning techniques and stuff and just using different kind of ingredients and, and um, just presenting it in a modern way. So. Mm-hmm. And so what do you do at Actinolite and how does that compare to the experiences you had away? Yeah, I, th- I, f- I found it um, at home in Actinolite because we're definitely thinking on those lines of like connecting with local farmers um, and local produce, obviously foraging a lot in the spring. Um, we 100% cook within the seasons, like just using things at their peak and when they're available. And we also do a tasting menu format and um, it's very like a casual dining room, but you're going to just experience something different. So. And... Who is your chef and what influence does he have on kind of the approach that you guys have in your kitchen? Because from what I gather, um, you're not only cooking for dinner service or you're not only thinking about dinner service, you're situated in the community and that has a lot to do with uh, your head chef. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, chef Justin Cornoyer uh, is a chef at Actinlight, uh, also the owner, and um, he has a huge influence on anyone that really kind of comes in contact with him, trying to connect um, farmers with even the community and like how, you know, he had mentioned once that uh, his son has a pizza party every week at school. Uh, who's like five and you know why is he having a pizza party why is he not having crudite or why are kids not knowing about this and so from those kind of discussions about uh, people just eating right and better and you know how you feel better through your food and and you feel better through better products and cooking with good products and just kind of all those discussions that we have here that's where um, the whole charity side of what we are trying to do uh, with the homegrown dinner project came about can you just talk a little bit more about that like what is this combination of things coming back working for actinolite working for justin um what how did that formulate the homegrown dinner project yeah so um he he really pushes uh, the guys that work for him like to just kind of have a voice and um you know you're always used to being stuck in a kitchen all the time and and just you kind of lose focus of what's going on around you and then maybe uh 
you get tunnel vision a little bit that way working in a kitchen and uh, he definitely um, you know he wants us to get outside and with the foraging and stuff and we visit farms and and see where all this stuff comes from and also with the community um, you know he when we were talking about the homegrown dinner project he's like you have to get out to the stop and you have to see where you know not just give a check to them but actually see where that money would go and like maybe come up with a, a program for kids where that specifically comes from you and he really just you know it's endless kind of influence that he has beyond the kitchen beyond cooking so um yeah it's it's hard not to be touched by that when you work here absolutely so you just mentioned the stop who is the stop and who is their parent kind of organization because that's who we're talking about here and who you were raising money for for through the project right yeah definitely um the stop is one of the food centers under the community food centers canada branch uh that's their they are nationwide, and then they have two places here in Toronto, uh, the Stop and then one in Regent Park. They also uh, are focusing more on food education for, like, lower-income families. Um, um, just, you know, they want families to be able to eat better, and they in the summer they have a garden and stuff where you can come in, the community come in and share and stuff like that. So it's it's a, more of an idea of... of good food should be available to everyone, not just, you know, the super rich or, or whatever that might be. Right. And it goes beyond even just providing a nutrient rich meal. You're trying to teach someone what to look for and how to provide that and and, and then yeah. also provide the resources, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so tell me about the dinner. What went down? Yeah, the dinner actually um, was a lot of work, but it, it just was so seamless and all the stress of, you know, of, of kind of planning it came together at the end and it just went off beautifully in my opinion anyway I hope I hope the diners felt that way and <laughs> but we did get a, good, a lot of good feedback and um, you know there's a lot of friends and family there obviously but there was also a lot of uh, industry people there and then just people that wanted to you know if they didn't want to come for the food at least they were coming to support the cause which which really worked out beautifully yeah who was involved and what was the format and what was the inspiration or what were some of the standout dishes that happened that night yeah, it was, um, it was five courses with the pairings, with wine pairings. Um, the chefs, like for the first one, hopefully because it is a series, we're trying to get uh, different chefs involved, like uh, probably switch it up a little bit every time. But the first chefs were uh, John Pong from Drake 150, uh, Romain Avril, uh, who's the chef for Trademark, um, Phil de Montburn, who's the chef at Rum Corner, uh, myself and the sous chef here at... Um, Actinolite is Barbatsudi. So it was the five of us. And um, we each did a course. And um, yeah, some of the dishes, like Phil um, from Rum Corner had spent a few years at, at Noma, working at Noma in, in Denmark, in Copenhagen, um, who just did a really um, interesting dish of a Jerusalem artichoke. Uh, it was cooked in buttermilk and whey. And uh, it, was, it was just more of a dish that would make you think uh, quite a bit and push kind of, you know, what you would expect from yeah. a from a J choke, right? Um, mm. That's kind of typical of Noma in general. Right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah so so like bringing his forward. experience into it, uh, Romain, uh, who has a French background, did like the main course, which was like a beautiful braised beef cheek, and you know, so you get both sides. It just mm-hmm. um, and when you say both sides, you mean not only are you yeah, we were talking about Noma and pushing the boundaries and all that stuff, and then you have classic French, which is what all this emanates from right yeah definitely i think uh putting putting these kind of these chefs together we we all sat down and we wanted a cohesive dinner so it wasn't just like 
you know, everyone just trying to show off or, or be too fancy or, you know, too much, I guess we call it tweezer food, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, no, it was, it was, it was quite an interesting menu and you had a little bit of everything and hopefully people were, you know, satisfied and, and they, they seemed to enjoy it. So fair enough. Um, and you mentioned the cause a few times now, so talk to me about their response to hearing that you guys wanted to do this for them. Um, they were actually, yeah, they were thrilled. Christina came by and she had a chance to speak a little bit about, mm-hmm. about, um, what they do and, and where the money's going and kind of, she talked about the charity itself, uh, which was great. So like, you know, you, the guests got to kind of hear about where, what it was all about from her. Mm-hmm. So it was and sort really of hit great. it home, I guess. Right? Yeah. They like, were so grateful and they were like, just so excited that, um, people wanted to do this just out of nowhere, you know, for them. So, um, and so, yeah, talk about the feedback. Um, from feedback was great. Diners, we got, yeah. yeah, we got a lot of good feedback. I mean, um, obviously the first one was a lot of friends and family, but then, you know, we had these pockets of, uh, of, of just some random people that kind of found, found us somehow on, on Instagram or something and they just <laughs> showed up and they loved it. Right. So it was really great. Yeah. On the night you were you were doing the food, but it was a fully comprehensive menu. You had wine pairings as well, and yeah. So all of our wine pairings were donated that night. Um, all like we had a lot of uh, Niagara wines um, from our manager Marin. She um, she actually organized all the booze for the night, I guess, mm-hmm. and uh, it was all donated, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. And then we also had a chance to work with Stu Sakai, who works at the uh, the sake factory. Shout here. out, yes. Yeah, and, um, <laughs> I know you guys are familiar with him. Um, he actually did a custom blend for one of the dishes to, to pair with, uh, like a dashi and rutabaga dish, uh, which came out beautifully. Actually, mm-hmm. everyone said that was the best pairing of the evening. Oh, cool. But yeah, when you say, when you ask for, for stuff, for donations because the charity is for dinner, people are very like eager to kind of help out, which is amazing for us. And, um, and it just like goodness breeds goodness because you're hearing from people who also want to help with the next one. I'm, is yeah, that right? definitely. People already want to get involved. A couple of restaurants are like, oh, it's amazing. Let's uh, let's host the other one, the next one, sorry. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, hopefully it just gets bigger from there. But um, yeah, the feedback's been amazing. People really want to get involved. There's chefs that want to get involved. that want to do the next one. Uh, they want to do a course. And uh, yeah, there's a couple of restaurants that are interested in hosting as well. So Amazing. So what is the future of the Homegrown Dinner Project? Uh, we'll just keep rolling, I guess. Um, it's hard now because a lot of the chefs want to... Uh, they don't want to give up their seat right now. So, um, but I also have some guys on deck that are younger guys that really want a shot of, of kind of expressing themselves and like. And girls, I hope. Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just checking. For me, it's just someone who's never done something like this before. And if you're ever thinking about doing it, you should definitely just push yourself and try and do it because I didn't even think I would be capable of, you know, mm-hmm. kind of doing this thing. It was my first time kind of branching out and. You know, again, under Chef's, uh, Chef Justin's influence of kind of doing everything yourself and, and just seeing what you're made of, really, and, and just bringing good people together. And, and it's amazing what you could accomplish. So if you're ever thinking about doing something like this, like, you should definitely just do it. Yeah. Yeah. Dig deep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Push yourself. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me here. And, yeah, looking forward to the next one. Thank you very much for uh, for taking your time out and interviewing me. And shout out to Food Stuff. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thanks, Omar. Thank you. Cheers. That was Jess speaking with Omar Jahangir about his homegrown dinner project. Jess, really interesting, fascinating guy. Tell me more. Absolutely. It's just really cool to see someone inspired by clearly an awesome leader 
um, in his head chef to look outside of the kitchen and the restaurant and to think about how to make a positive impact in the community while also providing an opportunity for his peers to express themselves. And I think it's clear that it's going well given the response that he's uh, gotten from others in the industry. And I think that's when you know you have a good idea, when people just start jumping up and saying, like, how can I help? How can I help? Exactly. Um, I'm Basically, I'm just super proud of my friend and so excited to attend the next one. We will be sure to let everyone know when the second installment is coming. And, uh, yeah, keep an eye out on Facebook and Twitter. We'll, we'll post something there. Let's go. Let's do it. Done and done. Um, okay. Now it's game time, Brian. Yeah. Yes, it's game time. So... Let's uh, let's keep on our restaurant theme for a second here. There's all these sharing plate spots that have been popping up, and I know it's a little bit difficult for guests who aren't familiar with the industry. Sometimes it's a little intimidating. So let's right. let's get into it. Okay, let's all learn. Right. Let's play. Let's okay. have some fun. <laughs> so we are going to do a what would you do? Okay, is that what we should call it? What would you do? <laughs> Seems pretty like a, a good name. You could do anything. That. Sky's the limit, what right? What to do next. <laughs> this game is called What Do You Do Next? All right, Brian. So I'm going to give you some scenarios. Um, and maybe I or maybe not. I've been informed by my experience as sure. a server. Um, but uh, we're going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to see what you would do. Okay. as a guest in, in a scenario. So, situation number one. You are out for dinner. You decide to order a plate of oysters for your table. Oh, delicious. Do you love oysters, Brian? I do. I okay, do. so this yeah. is relevant. Good. Um, so, your oysters land on the table in front of you. A plate of 12 oysters. There's a few of you sharing them. Mm. You have a plate. You have a fork. Uh, like an oyster fork, and uh, and basically, how how do you approach eating your oysters? I'm just so curious. Well, uh, normally I uh, I pick up the oyster <laughs> on the shell with my left hand, mm -hmm. and usually I'll do. I like to keep it simple. Yeah. What do, like what do you put little, on your oysters? Like a What's little your lemon juice, mm -hmm. or maybe yeah. a tiny bit of horseradish. Mm -hmm. um, but I always want to have them with as little stuff as possible to begin with yeah yeah yeah. right and you know bombs up slurp it back and then when you're done with your oyster where does it go i don't know like either on the plate or on the the tray there mm-hmm okay this is good this is actually what no shade what have, what have i done wrong <laughs> you haven't done anything wrong i'm i'm really happy actually it's just I, observationally okay just keep that plate out of there an oyster is its own plate it's got a little plate. It is like its own plate, really, isn't it? <laughs> it's the perfect little plate for mm -hmm. the perfect little oyster. And of course, you can just put it back as it was, right side up. Next level is turning it over. It's is the it same as if you order a beer in a can and they give you a, a glass with it. You're gonna put it in the glass, not because you care one way or the other, so that your server knows from a distance without interrupting you to find out how things are going. Right. To ask you if you need another drink. Okay, because they can see it. They can so see the oysters, through the they glass. They can see it upside down. With the can, if I want to take it to a next level, what if I take it, put it on the ground, and stomp it with my foot <laughs> and put it back on the table there so you can clearly tell I'm done with a can? Is that but, advisable? Okay, so the whole theme of this game is basically I don't want to bother you. 
help the server not bother you. Okay. Okay. Next, one more, one more time. You have just enjoyed a dish. You are sharing it with your fellow diners. There's an empty plate in the center of the table, and it's a little bit out of reach of the server. Right. What do you do? The uh, server is not there, but you are expecting more food. Well, you know, if there's more food coming, I probably just uh, you got to move the move the plate out of the way. Mm-hmm. Right. So leave a good. I always want to make sure there's a good landing spot. For sure. Where possible. For sure. So that's that's awesome. Okay. Super helpful. Thank you. Um, I think I'm doing okay on this. Yeah, this you're, test, you're you're really you're like doing a B great. student. This you're is having, like school. Again. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm putting you in a. I'll give you a B plus. Which is great. Maybe awesome. even an A minus, buddy. But um, yeah, the whole thing there is yes, clearing space, being mindful right. that we need more space. Um, I will just request that that plate goes closer to. A, okay. You know what I mean? If I can walk by your table and seamlessly nab it off the edge right. of the table where you've left it for me because you're done with it, and not interrupt you, that is everyone wins. Okay. Not so what to. was the name of that game again? Be a good guest. Be a good guest. <laughs> that sounds like the worst game. Here's a fun game. This is like something like some type A person is like, how about a fun game? It's called, <laughs> let's see how nicely you can clean up your room. Okay, that was be a good guest with Jessica Walker. <laughs> Okay, okay. So up next, farming in southern Ontario. So if you've listened to this show for a while, you might have heard me mention that part of my motivation for um, co-creating foodstuffs came from my experience interviewing various players, mostly around the GTA, that had to do with uh, the food chain, agriculture, urban agriculture, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. During that time, I met with a farmer from Glencoe, Ontario, which is a small little uh, community agricultural town um, that's about two and a half hours southwest of Toronto. Which is about halfway between Hamilton and Detroit, if I understand correctly. Yeah, and it's in an area known as the Green Belt, which is sort of a protected area known for like beautiful views and beautiful soil. Um, and that's where a lot of our Ontario farms are. Cool. Um, so Larry McGill is a multi-generational farmer. Mostly he has soy corn and wheat uh, growing on his fields, which are three really highly valued crops that have been pretty hotly debated for various reasons recently. Mm -hmm. And although Larry is a proud Canadian, um, he chooses to sell some of his crop overseas. So is that just the price that he can get overseas and that he can get at a higher price? Actually, you know, it has more to do with sort of that, that end user, that eater, Mm-hmm. The person that's actually consuming the product and their appreciation for for that food and the value that okay. they see in it. Right. Interesting. So let's take a listen. This is Brian in conversation with Larry McGill, a farmer located in Glencoe, Ontario. I consider myself to be a resource manager of of the the environment that's here, and I have some really nice a really nice environment to work with in Southwest Ontario. We get four seasons. You get a break in the disease cycle and the insect cycle with a really good winter and then you can start all over again. So I would like to pursue a more closer 
marketing within Ontario, but to be honest with you, I find it satisfying satisfying to be marketing into a, a country that actually values the food and doesn't waste it. And in a lot of the Asian diets, they consider uh, food to be medicine and it's part of, of a healthy lifestyle. And although we're starting to go down that road here in, in Canada, I don't really see a lot of movement that way. People talk the talk, but then if you follow them around the grocery store, it's the instant pizza mix and it's just it's just not what I would like to see happening here. And it's really tough to change it. But is it important to you to try to keep your your food local? I really feel I'm more in touch with my consumers overseas because they have a much healthier attitude towards food. I'm not really happy with the the domestic soybean production. Um, quite often I can produce a good quality uh, soybean that would go into soy milk or, or soy beverage as it's called here and um, I'm really highly frustrated that the product ends up uh, with lots of preservatives in it. It ends up with like a an eight-week shelf life and that's just not the way that it should be done. Like if you look at soy milk in Pacific Mall in Toronto, it has a one-day shelf life. If they don't sell it by the time the mall closes, they dump it down the drain. It's, it's made fresh that day and it's usually drank warm. There are no preservatives in it. Um, I'm also frustrated with the consumer's use of tofu. Like a lot of people buy tofu, they just put it in the fridge and when it turns green, they throw it out because they don't know how to cook it. And I'm much more happier you know, if I'm going to grow a high quality soy product, export it into a country that knows how the cuisine works. And the same thing is going on with wheat. Uh, it's a little early to be talking about this, but um, uh, recently pursuing uh, the sprouted wheat market uh, for uh, the, the people from Persia, um, most people that domesticate a crop have come up with the most efficient way of consuming the crop. Um, Persians have discovered that by using sprouted wheat, there are a lot of health benefits to doing that. And if I do that, the product, my wheat crop is going to stay right in Ontario because that ethnic market is right here in, in Toronto. So if that takes off, I'm probably going to jump out of the out of the U.S. market for pizza wheat, and I, I'll be, it'll still be the same wheat. It's just that it's going to go to a much different market. It's going to go into a marketplace where the people, you know, really appreciate appreciate what they get, and it's going to be high end again. The corn thing, the food crop corn, um, it worked great from 1976 to uh, the year that we had a a little bit of a production problem. And although I did have food grade corn headed for the uh, Kellogg's market for the, for the uh, breakfast cereal, uh, Kellogg's cornflakes specifically, um, they went global. They decided that the product should be the same in London, England and Sydney and Rio de Janeiro. And they went to uh, a multinational supplier and I lost the marketplace completely. 
how does what people want to buy and what people want to eat affect what you're actually growing? It really urkles me to go to the grocery store and see what people buy in, in terms of, you know, prepared food that's got too much sodium in it, it's got too much cholesterol in it, it's, it's got too much sugar in it, um, and it's all prepared. It's all designed about slapping it in the microwave and, you know, they're pounding their foot waiting for it to get out of there in 60 seconds so they can get at it. I, I really don't want to go down that line, but I would get into anything that came up that was outside of that kind of a system where it was like more of a healthy like a nutraceutical thing like our conservation club, club stumbled upon uh, how we could grow soybeans we, uh, that had high isoflavins but we can't market it here because we're not allowed to do that like it's been promised by the past 20 years worth of politicians that farmers would be able to flog the health benefits of their food but we legally can't do that. So if, if we're tied up here, why don't we just deal with people who see it for what it is? See it for value, see it for quality. Some of the people we're talking to are sort of those early adopters and sort of on that leading edge of you know, seeing that quality, seeing the reasons behind it. For the people that aren't there, the people that do like their microwave dinners, lunches, breakfasts, why should they care more about the quality, the taste of their food? Well, you know, we are what you eat. Um, <laughs> uh, you can't get around that. And I do think that dietary selection is, is really, really important if you want to live to a ripe old age. And uh, um, we, we all basically come from, come from the soil. And a, a lot of the big mistakes we've made right now are in the ultra-processed processed foods. Like, there are people in the food production system that won't let their family eat what they're selling on the shelves. And that's just not right. Um, I'm a foodie. I'd go for high end every time. Well, I mean, that's, that's a hard thing because I think also it's not just convenience, it's money. It's one thing to say, okay, yeah, I know I do want to eat better. But to really put your money where, you, where your mouth is. That's, that's the problem with North American consumers. Like, it's not just a little difference. Like we spend about 8% on food. Um, pretty common to find 12 or 16 or 25% of your entire disposable income on, on food. But then again, they don't have the big health concerns. Like we've got an enormous budget here in healthcare. We eat stupid. We're going to age poorly and be a high maintenance, high user of the healthcare system down the road. Either pay me now or pay the health system later. How would including more uh, local food into our food system, having a greater percentage of food that comes within a, let's say, uh, two, three, maybe even 500 kilometer radius, how would that uh, change I, things for us? I think that food that's processed locally if you reduce the shipping time, you let the, the fruit or the vegetable mature to a longer 
duration in the field because it's not going to go out of condition. Going out of condition is the big problem, right? Because if it ends up in the dumpster behind the grocery store, everybody loses. We've basically been spoiled by absolutely perfect fruits and vegetables. I find it hard to actually find, this year I found it really hard to find peaches that were mature, even Ontario peaches, because they're picked too early in the season. They're rushing the market. They're trying to get them there sooner. So they pick them green and they taste like sawdust. We have to stop the consumer and, you know, instead of marketing by size, market by quality and price by quality. You're, you've been here a long time. You're a son of a farmer. You grew up on this farm and you've been farming in this area your whole life. Um, what do you like about farming and the farm lifestyle? Every day is completely different and it all revolves around the weather. And in Ontario, the weather's different every day. If you don't like the weather, wait for the next front. The next front 600 miles out and moving 60 miles an hour this way. Every day is different and it's going to base, basically revolve around the weather. You get to decide what happens. I really could not live like one of my friends in high school where he went in grade 12 to work making Crown Victorias in St. Thomas. And he retired there before they closed it. Like going to work in the dark and coming back in the dark would just kill me. Like being outside for so much of the day, even if I'm working in the shop, I'm in a building, I have a 24 foot door that's open, unless there's a big monsoon of a rain coming through or some big cold blizzard blowing, I have the door open. It's an unheated shop. Um, it's just so fantastic to be, you know, you put down whatever you're working and just listen and observe what's going on in nature. And that was farmer Larry McGill from Glencoe, Ontario. Yeah, this is actually such an interesting conversation because I have to admit I'd never really considered that stance before, that a farmer would have so much pride in a crop like wheat at all, actually, which is awful. Um, <laughs> but when he got, I don't know why, I wouldn't have thought of that. Um, but when he got to talking about what people say versus what they do when no one's watching yeah. at the grocery store, that definitely hit home for me because um, it's messed up. Well, it's how we think about food now. You know what I mean? Like most Canadians, their fridge and their pantry is sort of like a bomb shelter. It's like, <laughs> what food can I buy today that I can eat any time between now and when I die? Exactly. Basically, is so it's sort of like just stock everything up. Whereas, you know, very often, and I know our lives have changed, right? Yeah. There's no doubting that. But I mean, it used to be that you would go and buy your food and eat it that day exactly you know? which is and what we should be getting back to which yeah. is relevant to our conversation with glenford last weekend and yeah. like the brazil model versus <laughs> the canada's food guy yeah exactly yeah and uh, you know he's talking about he referenced actually pacific mall if you don't know pacific mall mm -hmm. that's like a like an asian mall in um just outside of toronto in markham uh, in markham yeah and which is now kind of viewed as the actual Chinatown instead of the downtown Spadina Chinatown. Yeah. It's the true Chinatown at this yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. It's cool. And um, that's it's a really like, special place. There's a lot of really authentic uh, uh, Chinese food because there is, again, that that eth ethnic market is is right there. Yeah. It's a big enough market that they can cater to that market. But again, 
we have to think about sort of what's important to us. And a lot of people will say that, oh, health and nutrition and providing themselves and their family with uh, healthy food is very important to them. But again, go watch what they put in the grocery cart. Go watch what they put on the table for their family every day. And these things don't line up. So we've reached the end of another episode of Foodstuffs. Huge thanks to Omar Jahangir for taking me around the Ectena Light Kitchen and, let, and letting me taste a few yummy things. Thanks, of course, to Larry McGill and Andrew McGill for hosting me at their farm in Glencoe. Thanks, as always, to Ken Sauer and Eric Betlam from CIUT. We love Studio 2, as you all know. And thanks to you for listening. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Foodstuffs Life or by searching Foodstuffs on Facebook. And we're on the web, of course, at foodstuffs.life, www.foodstuffs.life. Don't forget the www. <laughs> Just because... Yeah. You yeah. can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast app you could possibly dream of. Speaking of iTunes, stop by and give us a review, why don't ya? If you listen to many podcasts, you know this is the best way to let others know about the show and that we're worth checking out. So why not spread the love around? Yeah, make an afternoon of it. Tell iTunes about all of the shows you adore. <laughs> I'm Brian Goman. And I'm Jessica Walker. Thank you so much for listening. Find you back here in two weeks. Bye.